Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for a revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. In this talk, Fight Back organizer Jessica Cassell discusses the Marxist approach to the struggle against oppression, contrasting it with that of liberal identity politics. We're often peddled this idea of capitalism as uh, a system that provides a steady march forward of progress, that over time um, it overcomes social problems and affords more you know, rights and equalities uh, to, to people and society. But just a quick look at just even the mainstream media shows that this isn't the case, that inequality and division and oppression are well and alive in 2018. Um, I could spend the whole day off just giving examples of how different groups in society are oppressed, uh, but you know, there's the seemingly endless and pervasive uh, police brutality and violence against uh, black, indigenous, and racialized communities all over uh, North America. Um, these just open transphobic ideas on our campuses, uh, being spewed by professors themselves even. Um, we see the treatment of women um, who come forward about sexual violence, and we see continued violence against uh, women uh, we also see uh, anti-Muslim and anti-immigrant sentiment being whipped up by reactionaries. Uh, the cactus got elected in Quebec, and they're actually um, already whipping up uh, anti-immigrant um, anti, uh, and Islamophobic sentiments. Uh, so it's very pervasive. And so contrary to the steady march forward um, of, you know, towards equality for all, we, we see the contrary very clearly. And we're actually seeing a resurgence of open and bold reactionary and hateful ideas, discriminatory ideas, being flamed and, and peddled by the likes of Doug Ford, the CAC in Quebec, and, and Trump. Uh, so not to, uh, not to say that there hasn't been any strides forward. Clearly, over the last six decades, there's been some advances made for different oppressed groups in society. Uh, and this has always been the result of long, hard, and bitter fights on, on the part of, of oppressed groups in society, largely linked up to the, the class struggle. Uh, now, a lot of the rights that have been won are rights on paper. We have equality uh, enshrined in our constitution. Uh, Anti-discrimination uh, laws uh, are, you know, at the provincial and national level. And this is the case um, in many parts of the world. Anti-discrimination and equality are enshrined in law. So we have achieved in a very limited fashion and not, not um, in every instance or all over the world by any means, some degree of what we can call legal or formal equality on paper. Uh, but if you look at, again, reality, uh, it's unquestionable that in the actual conditions of life, um, that is to say, at the economic and social conditions of life, people remain, uh, the working class remains stratified by race and ethnicity, uh, language and religion, gender, sexual orientation, ability, and so forth. And that these uh, oppressed groups in society experience varying um, and often brutal degrees of social and economic uh, injustice and inequality. Now, living under these burdens of uh, oppression and discrimination in all their forms cause many to seek out explanations for why such inequality and discrimination exists in society. We also see spontaneous movements erupt against all the different forms of oppression, which shows a widespread anger uh, among uh, uh, millions of youth and workers around the world who want to fight against oppression and discrimination, 
Just recent examples are, you know, Black Lives Matter, I Don't Know More, the women's marches against Trump and the, the women's strikes around the world on International Women's Day, the Me Too movement, and the growing trans rights and disability rights movements. I'll add that these movements are reflective and part of a growing questioning of the capitalist system uh, as a whole that we're seeing, particular, particularly among the youth. Uh, this is also tied into the popularity around Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn, uh, the organizing of fast food workers uh, across the United States, um, and a general growing interest in socialism that we're seeing, um, which has been reflected in polls around the world where socialism, uh, you know, over 50%, 50% of youth support socialism um, in, in the States and all in parts of Europe, um, all over the world. So there's clearly a desire to fight against to fight against oppression in all its forms, and people are looking for answers for how to do that. Some will find those answers in the ideas of identity politics, which is a prevalent outlook adopted by the leadership of many of these spontaneous movements. Um, the leadership of these movements are often either part of or influenced by the academic left, who inject these ideas from the helm. Now, identity politics is an umbrella term for approaches to understanding uh, oppression that consider how different facets of identity shared by social groupings shape the political and social reality of those groups, loosely speaking. And so various streams of fake feminism, fear theory, anti-racist theory movements what would fall into this, into this umbrella. And it's a big umbrella, so I can't talk about every tendency within it. And within that umbrella is intersectionality, uh, which is, I'd say, today the most prevalent or popular uh, trend um, among the academic left and among student activists and leadership, um, meaning that it is, also, it is often the first approach that young people, uh, students, especially students, will come into contact with when they're looking for ideas and methods to fight oppression. And because it's one of the most prevalent um, outlooks adopted by the leadership of some of these movements, I'll focus largely on intersectionality today. Intersectionality is most commonly uh, used to describe the existence of multiple and simultaneously overlapping forms of oppression and discrimination, which intersect or overlap in various configurations to create unique experiences and sets of social barriers for different individuals. Uh, you may have heard the phrase of the need to be intersectional, which has you know, risen a lot in various social movements. And this implies that any given struggle must be inclusive and representative of individuals experiencing multiple overlapping forms of oppression, as opposed to narrowly focusing on just one group or one form of oppression. Now, Marxists agree that individuals or groups can and do experience multiple forms of overlapping oppressions simultaneously, and that each configuration will present a unique set of social uh, barriers and a unique experience navigating the social world. From a Marxist standpoint, no one form of oppression can be understood or overcome in isolation, and the struggle against oppression and exploitation uh, must include and draw in all layers of the oppressed. So on the surface, it might seem like Marxism and intersectionality are complementary or compatible. However, uh, intersectionality is more than just this standalone concept that there are multiple and overlapping forms of oppression with which Marxists would have no, no disagreement in, which I think is uh, clear as day, uh, but the body of literature that makes up uh, uh, intersectionality goes further to theorize how oppression is perpetuated in society and where it originates from. And it is here in the theoretical underpinnings of intersectionality that we can see that it's actually quite different from Marxism in its understanding of 
uh, its understanding of oppression and how to fight it. Now, these ideas of intersectionality originate in the period of reaction following the, de the defeat of the revolutionary waves of the 60s and 70s and the diversion of the civil rights movement along state legal channels. This is largely due to uh, a failure of the labor and Stalinist Communist Party leadership around the world and leading the working class in successful socialist revolutions, uh, which could have actually eradicated the social and economic basis for oppression in society. The collapse of the Soviet Union also uh, led to widespread demoralization and threw, black, uh, threw back class consciousness uh, enormously um, and also led to a, you know, an ebb in the class struggle. Leaders of the civil rights movement who were drawing revolutionary, you know, radical socialist conclusions, such as Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X, were assassinated, as were many leaders of the Black Panther Party. And so, yeah, the, uh, in the period that followed, there was an ebb of the class struggle that receded. And it was in this period that identity politics really gained ascendancy. So in this time, identity pol politics focused on specific um, axes of, of identity and oppression, um, and largely sought to address particular forms of oppression uh, within the capitalist system. The civil rights movement uh, was diverted along safe legal channels through policies and laws around affirmative action. Uh, that required state institutions, employers, and academic institutions to provide a set number of opportunities or positions uh, for uh, people of color or for, and uh, sexual minorities and women. The working class and revolutionary demands and conclusions that emerged during the civil uh, rights era subsided. And a layer of um, people from historically oppressed groups, a small layer of people from historically oppressed groups, uh, were able to rise to positions within the state, the academy, um, and as lawyers and lawmakers. It was mainly this layer of intellectuals that would go on to advance and develop theories of identity politics from third wave feminism, queer theory, and intersectionality. Um, and this was largely in the academy that you know, these ideas were theoretically developed. These theories would be much more divorced from the class struggle than the anti-racism and feminism of the 60s and 70s, which did tend to critique capitalism um, and were tied to the class struggle um, much more concretely. And these theories would be much more individualistic. This is because these individuals, these lawmakers, uh, academics, professors, are what Marxists call part of the petty bourgeoisie. Um, they are a, an independent class between the capitalist class and the working class, uh, who are mostly either self-employed or di divorced or removed from the collective labor that most working class people uh, engage in. Um, so for the working class, we tend to have much more of a collective consciousness. And when they move into struggle, they do so collectively through trade unions, through strikes, through mass demonstrations, because that's the consciousness of the workers, it's collective. Whereas the law, the, the academics, the, the lawyers, self-employed uh, people, uh, people higher, higher up in the state are divorced from that and tend to have a much more individualistic outlook. And so the theories that they advance towards fighting oppression tend to reflect that and tend to be much more individualistic. Now, intersectionality, which is an offshoot or a stream of feminism, was actually a reaction against traditional identity politics, which tended to cordon off the movement into single-axis struggles, ignoring the differences and overlapping oppressions uh, within the group. Uh, while the term was originally coined by uh, Kimberly Crenshaw in 1989 to highlight that black women were experiencing compound discrimination in the workplace, uh, not just being discriminated uh, for being black or just being discriminated for being woman, but uh, for being black woman, um, the, the concept had actually been around long before that. 
uh, and black women in particular have been highlighting for decades that the women's movement was largely dominated by white upper class women who ignored the reality and needs of working class and black women, and that the anti-racist movement was dominated by black men who often trivialized the oppression of women. And these were not unimportant critiques at the time. Marxists are also against coordinating off the movement into single issue struggles or single, um, yeah, single struggles. And they believe, we believe in a united struggle that fights all forms of, all forms of oppression, not just focuses on one form. Uh, however, while the preceding period, um, before the defeat of these, these mass movements and revolutionary waves, had seen a widespread critique of the capitalist system um, and connected the fight against oppression with the need to radically transform society, the theoretical underpinnings of intersectionality and other uh, streams of identity politics that uh, came after it uh, in the 80s and 90s uh, receded from class struggle and the radical transformation of society and emphasized discourse, language, and behavior as the lens through which to understand and change behavior. It represented a retreat from radical class struggle. And these theoretical underpinnings are largely uh, post-structuralism and post-modernism. And actually, these ideas uh, really took root or gained ascendancy um, in the 50s uh, among French intellectuals and in the Communist Party who were disillusioned with Stalinism. And so even these ideas also come from a pessimism among a layer of intellectuals. And it was these same theoretical or philosophical um, trends which would form the, the theoretical root of what we call intersectionality today, um, which was another layer of pessimism among, among the intellectuals. It's also worth noting that these post-Marxist ideas, uh, post-structuralism and post-modernism, uh, were enthusiastically welcomed and uh, actually um, explicitly and purposefully spread by the capitalist class as a counterweight against Marxism and class struggle. Uh, it is a fact that the CIA actively promoted these ideas as a weapon against Marxism and socialist revolution, and they actually actively funded academic and cultural institutions around the world in order to promote these ideas because they wanted to push the intelligentsia to the right and away from revolutionary Marxism. They've actually stated this explicitly uh, in some of their uh, papers and reports that uh, have become available under Freedom of Information Acts. And that is because these ideas, despite the best intentions of some of their proponents, actually detract from the social and class origins of oppression and detract from the need for the revolutionary transformation of society. That they were used as a weapon against revolutionary class struggle and ideas is very telling, and it says a lot about the practical application of these ideas if you apply them to the movement against oppression. So let's look a bit more closely at some of the ideas contained within intersectionality and their limits from a Marxist perspective. As I said, intersectionality is more than just the standalone concept that there's multiple and overlapping forms of oppression uh, with which um, no one can really disagree with. Uh, for one, in intersectional feminist uh, literature and theory, all forms of oppression are seen as equally fundamental to propping up the, you know, the system that we live in. Whereas in more narrow forms of identity politics that came before it, whichever facet of identity or single form of oppression being considered would tend to be seen as the most fundamental. So, um, you know, many older streams of feminism said that gender was the fundamental oppression to understanding society. Um, Anti-racist scholars in the preceding period would argue that racism is the fundamental oppression. Now, intersectionality came along and tried tried to overcome the limitations of identity politics, but kind of brought it back 
um, on, a, on another level. And it says that they're all, they're all fundamental. The second to that, they're seen as intersecting and mutually reinforcing, but they're written about and talked about as separate systems of oppression. So there's the system of racism, the system of sexism, um, as if they exist, yes, interconnected, but also separately. Now, Marx has explained that oppression is a product of class society and springs from it, and therefore cannot be understood separately from it and is not a separate system. Capitalism, the system that we live under today, is a form of class society based on a production for private profit and the exploitation of the working class for profit. It relies on oppression and discrimination to keep people divided and from uniting against their common oppressor and exploiters. And because oppression and discrimination of certain groups is profitable, it creates a large layer of precarious work. Um, and because of this, um, oh wait, I moved that sentence, that sentence up. Um, also, it's profitable because it creates a large layer of precarious workers who are forced to work for less in a race to the bottom. And this drives up profits for the bosses. Some forms of oppression, such as that of women, predates capitalism and goes all the way back to the development of private property in the very first class societies, uh, which I don't really have time to, to go that far back. Uh, but under capitalism, it takes its own unique form. Uh, capitalism profits off of the unpaid labor that women do in the home, and thus it continuously strives to reinforce those rigid gender roles that existed in, in uh, class societies that existed before it. Uh, but capitalism also pays off, uh, pay, profits off of paying women less in the workforce. On uh, previous forms of class society, uh, women were actually confined to the, the domestic realm. Capitalism brought them back into the public world, but doubly exploits them and pays them even less. And so under capitalism, women are doubly oppressed, not just as they were in previous forms of society, confined as property in the domestic realm, but now also exploited as workers. Now other forms of oppression, such as racism, were actually born out of the capitalist system itself and along with it. Uh, white supremacist and racist ideologies were literally invented to justify the colonization and enslavement of Africans and indigenous peoples around the world, the pillage of which laid the foundation for the, the development of capitalism. Um, so in either case, these forms of oppression cannot be fought separately from fighting the capitalist system. Now, the exploitation of, of wage labor for profit is the defining and fundamental element of the capitalist mode of production. The working class generates all the profits in society through its labor. That means that the working class is in a unique position to bring the capitalist system down. So when Marxists say that class exploitation is the fundamental form of oppression under capitalism, it's not because we think that the working class is superior uh, to other oppressed groups in society or because we think that class exploitation is the worst form of suffering uh, in capitalist society because it's uh, not really. It is because the working class, again, are the ones who can bring the economy, the economy to a halt and who can ultimately transform society um, and, and end the system that leads to all this oppression in the first place. And when we say that class is the fundamental uh, form of oppression in society, you can kind of lo look at it as that fu fundamental dividing line that exists, where any member of the ruling class, regardless of their ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, ability, and whatnot, will defend the interests of their class. That is, they will promote the exploitation and oppression of the rest of us, and uphold the capitalist system and all the ills and it inflicts on the majority for the profits of a few. And so that's where we say that the fundamental dividing line is. It's a small minority against the vast majority. So 
So this is why Marxists don't agree that all forms of oppression are equally fundamental to understanding and taking down capitalism, uh, which is not to say they aren't all important and that we don't fight against them all because we absolutely do. You can look at it as um, uh, finding the most fundamental support beam in the building and kicking it out so you can take the whole structure down. Um, and that's, that's the class divide and that's the class, that's class exploitation. It's also important to note that the, the working class also uh, encompasses the vast majority of the oppressed. Um, and it is through a united class struggle that draws in all layers of the oppressed that we can ultimately eradicate the capitalist system and all the oppression it upholds. Now another limitation of, of intersectionality that I, I alluded to was the, em the emphasis and primacy that it gives to the realm of thought and ideas and language as a way to understand and fight oppression. Just uh, as an example, uh, Crenshaw, who coined the term intersectionality, was one of its original proponents, um, referred to the failure of the court system to address the double discrimination of black women um, in the workplace as a, as a framing problem. The suggestion is that if only judges or policymakers had a better uh, frame or outlook for understanding uh, the, oppression, the various oppressions that people face and how they can overlap, individuals or uh, groups experiencing compound exper uh, oppressions or uh, discriminations wouldn't fall through the cracks in this way, and they wouldn't be failed by the system in this way. Now, I think it's very clear that discriminatory uh, and oppressive attitudes held by people in positions of power, such as uh, judges or policymakers, um, do influence their actions and can perpetuate, do perpetuate marginalization in really harmful ways. We just have to look to look at what's happening now with the Supreme Court in, in, in the states, or you know the um, numerous examples of judges letting killer cops, um, they are the other one too, um, killer cops walk free with impunity, um, while you know sending uh, people of color. Um, to, uh, incarcerating them for small possessions. Um, so we can see that, you know, these attitudes can be harmful, but we have to ask where do these attitudes come from and is it fundamentally a problem of how people think? Now the harmful discriminatory attitudes held by these people in power reflect the needs of the capitalist system itself. Uh, the capitalist state, its court system, its police force exists to uphold the rule and profits of the capitalist class ultimately, which is very clear because you can see how they're used when there's a, a, a mass demonstration, a strike. Um, they're, sent, they're sent to shut it down. Um, lately, they've been protecting fascists openly. So we can see very clearly the role of the state. So it's not, it's not just the ideas of the individuals who hold positions in these institutions. It's the capitalist nature of the institutions themselves that's the foundation or the root of the problem. Um, so the, yeah, the nature of the, the institutions um, themselves, which are uh, undemocratic, unaccountable, um, with these, most of these positions being unelected. Um, so if you look to the example of these, these judges who let killer cops walk with impunity and, and, and persecute and penalize and, and further the marginalization of oppressed groups, how do we hold, there's no, they're not democratically elected. There's no structure in place for us to hold them accountable. They not, they're not accountable to us. They're accountable to the ruling class. You look at uh, instances of harassment and sexual assault in our workplaces. Well, the, clearly the way the workplace is structured is not uh, such that we have any kind of democratic oversight over it. Uh, the, the workplace uh, is defined, it's, it's inherently exploitative. Someone owns and controls the, your, your livelihood. 
you don't have a real say. Um, so it's the structures themselves, the institutions themselves, and the capitalist nature that's at the root of the problem. Not just how people in those institutions think. So if we kept those institutions in place, and we just put nicer people with better ideas in those structures, um, that would not get to the root of the problem. Because capitalism actually has inequality and oppression built into its very foundations. Now, obviously, when it comes to discriminatory attitudes um, and behaviors, it's not just judges or people in positions of power uh, who wield them. It's also everyday working people, poor people, and marginalized people who hold discriminatory attitudes. So why is this? Marx explained a long time ago that the dominant ideas in society are those of the ruling class. That is, the conditions of life, of their mode of production, their form of property, they shape and dominate our thought. The conditions of life under capitalism are such that the working class and the poor of all backgrounds are pit against each other in brutal cutthroat competition for opportunities and jobs, for placements in higher education, uh, for housing, for childcare spots, you name it. It's a brutal competition that we're all in um, against each other. The dominant values of capitalism, of individualism, and competition reflect and reinforce that real social reality. As do the ideas of superiority and inferiority of some groups, which the ruling class whips up uh, to keep us pit against each other. Um, this is so that we are distracted from the main enemy and the very system that actually, um, at root, exploits and oppresses all of us, and to keep us fighting for crumbs underneath the table of the bankers and the bosses. Uh, this is especially seen in times of crisis, which I may think is very clear now, that when capitalism is in crisis, um, and it's attacking all the gains that the working class and the oppressed have made in the past, all the rights that we've won, um, better working conditions, um, when they go to slash those gains back and, and through austerity, uh, dismantling the social welfare state and whatnot, uh, in order to distract people from the real root of, of the problem and from their own suffering, Capitalist politicians and their friends in, in, the, you know, in the media, um, as well as the bosses, they claim that the crisis is to blame on this or that oppressed or marginalized group. And they try to convince some sections of the working class that it's those groups fighting for their rights that, um, that's taking away from their resources and opportunities, right out, of the, you know, right out of their pockets. Again, the point is to keep us fighting for crumbs, keep us fighting each other. In times of desperation, when people are struggling to survive, um, and especially when there isn't a genuine solution being offered um, by the left wing, a social solution, these ideas can take hold. Now, like I said, from a postmodern or post-structuralist standpoint, it's the ideas or the ways people frame their thoughts, the discourse, about other groups that is the root of oppression. For example, in regards to the multiple and intersecting forms of oppression that exist, Bell Hooks, who's a prominent uh, intersectional theorist, states that for me, it's like a house. They share the foundation, but the foundation is the ideological beliefs around which notions of domination are constructed. Now for Marxists, the foundation is not the ideological beliefs about other groups of people in society. The foundation is how humans organize around production and exchange, and how the conditions of life promoted from that form of social organization shape our beliefs. Now from each unique form of social organization comes a different culture, different form of state, different family, uh, different norms, um, and this exerts a powerful influence on how we think. You know, the way that we think doesn't just fall from the sky, ready-made. 
It's the social conditions of life. How are the conditions that we're brought up in since, uh, since birth that shape how we think? Uh, so the focus for change and for fighting oppression from, um, from the intersectional approach largely becomes uh, targeting belief systems and how people think. But from what I've talked about so far, about how it's actually social conditions um, that dominate how, you know, how people think, we can see that challenging how people think without ch challenging the social and economic conditions that exert these powerful influences over our thought is a very limited approach to fighting oppression. Um, if we do want to talk about how do we, how do we you know, change mass psychology or you know, where does a lot of our socialization come from, um, I mean, two, some of the most powerful ways that this occurs is through the levers of disseminating ideas, uh, which is um, uh, the media, um, the, um, our curriculum, our school systems. You know, these are some of the major lever levers that we promote uh, various ideas through, through which the dominant ideas uh, get promoted through. Uh, but do we own and control these things? Do we really have a democratic say over these institutions? No, we don't. They're, they're owned and controlled, again, uh, by, by the ruling class, including our education, even where, even supposedly public education, um, such as the university that we're, that we're in right now, um, is uh, funded, has funded from corporate powers, has unelected corporate executives sitting on the board of directors making decisions that aren't in your interests. So even if we want to talk about changing how people think on a mass level, you can't have that discussion without talking about who owns and controls the resources and, and wealth in society and the institutions of society. As long as it's the ruling class, we are not going to be able to effectively change how people think because they're going to use those institutions to, um, to brainwash us, essentially, into thinking in ways that promotes their system. Now, the emphasis on thought, uh, divorced from their social and material roots, inevitably takes us down the path of an individualist and a subjective approach to fighting oppression, which instead of, instead of serving to unify the struggle of all the oppressed, really ends up atomizing it um, down to the individual level. One of the ways the intersectional approach atomizes the movement instead of unifying it is by actually suggesting that different layers of the, of the working class and the oppressed do in fact have opposing interests from each other. Now, as are infinite configurations of overlapping oppressions and what is often referred to as privileges, intersectionality uh, theory uh, basically argues that we all exist in a, um, a, a web of sorts where we're all simultaneously oppressing and being oppressed by each other. Now, by the way, this, this notion is directly from uh, postmodernist post philosophy and theory um, that says that power is not concentrated um, in structures of society, that power is diffused. Um, and it, yes, it exists in the endless web that we are all caught up in. And the way that it's also written about, if you even read the, the words of Foucault, is that it doesn't explain why this web exists or what, how the spiders, I don't know if we're all spiders in the web, um, <laughs> how, what even, where they, where we derive this power from. Um, it just exists, and we're all caught up in it, almost as if there's no way out of it. We just exist in this infinite web, and we're all oppressing and being oppressed by each other. Uh, but because this is the view that intersectionality adopts, again, the emphasis of change really becomes at the interpersonal level, uh, focusing in on how we uh, think and act towards each other, um, to the detriment of a structural, um, more a structural understanding of, of oppression. 
And unity among the working class actually really becomes impossible from this perspective. Because from this perspective, we're all oppressed, we all are oppressing each other, and various groups in society have an interest in maintaining the oppression over other groups in society. Uh, well, it's very obvious that discriminatory and oppressive attitudes uh, and behaviors are carried out by individuals at the interpersonal level and within interpersonal dynamics, which must be condemned and fought um, by revolutionaries. It's not in hand to the working class or in, in the interest of any layer of the working class or the oppressed to discriminate against any other layer. Uh, so obviously persons or groups experiencing multiple or compound uh, discriminations or oppressions will be faced with greater degrees of uh, social barriers and intensified exploitation in society. Uh, however, from a Marxist standpoint, what are often described as privileges uh, should be uh, considered rights, that everyone should be equally afforded. We have to target and abolish the system that stratifies the working class and deprives oppressed layers of these rights, handing them to some layers to temporarily convince them that the system's working in their interest and that they should uh, contribute to keeping others down. The oppression of one group works to maintain the capitalist system which oppresses and exploits all of us, albeit in different ways. It is not in any worker's interest, like I said, for the domination or oppression of any other to continue. On the surface, it can sometimes look like it is in the interest uh, for one layer of the working class to uphold the oppression of another. Uh, for example, it's well known that men get paid more than women all over the world for the same work. So on the surface, it looks like men benefit from women getting paid less and that they have an interest in maintaining that pay inequity. However, men don't get paid more because women get paid less or vice versa. There's actually more than enough wealth for everyone to get, not, not just to have pay equity based on current uh, average wages, but for everyone to get a massive, massive <laughs> pay increase. Um, we're talking about um, eight people having more wealth than the bottom 3.6 billion people. There's more than enough wealth for us all, not just to have equal pay, but to have very high standards of living and get paid much, much more than we all do right now. The problem is the majority of that wealth is appropriated and hoarded by a small parasitic minority class. When, the, when workers of all backgrounds unite, they can rest more from the capitalist class. They have more interest in uniting and not keeping each other uh, oppressed and divided. It's actually the capitalist class who are the ones who benefit from men getting paid more than women because this actually drives everyone's wages down. It creates downward pressure on everyone's wages and profits up for themselves. They are the ones who benefit. Um, it's actually it's not in the interest of men for pay inequity to continue. Now the danger with privilege politics or how the notion of privilege um, is often promoted in, uh, in the movement by proponents of intersectionality is that it, I've seen this, it actually leads to activists actively trying to convince uh, sectors, uh, sections of the, work, the working class that they actually do benefit from the oppression of others. Now, I don't know, you know why, if you, if you wanted to end oppression, you would go to someone and convince them that it's in their interest to keep oppressing somebody. It's uh, very counterproductive. Um, you know, what we need to be doing is explaining how it's in all of our interest to unite so that we can uh, raise everyone up and give everyone uh, privilege, like the, privilege, the privileges that some layers have and much more. And by the way, the far right and the ruling class agrees with this notion that different layers of the working class have antagonistic interests. They agree. They agree that white workers and workers of color 
women, women and men, heterosexual and queer people, have antagonistic and incompatible interests. They agree, or at least if they don't actually believe it themselves, they sure you know, try to convince us of it. They want us to think this. And the far right actually, the far right argues this. Um, it's almost like a mirror image. Um, they argue this, the same thing from the right, that different layers of working class do have different interests, that rights for one group means less rights for the other. They're just coming at it from a reactionary standpoint and saying that, uh, espousing an identity politic around white nationalism, actually. Um, and again, the capitalist class wants us to think this, so we keep fighting each other. So the only way to fight the far right um, and the ruling class when they try to whip up reactionary, uh, racist, and misogynist sentiments um, is through, through, through unity, not through more division. We have to fight this idea that different layers of the working class have antagonistic interests. We have to fight that tooth and nail and fight for a united movement of all, all workers and, and all layers of the oppressed. Unity is actually our greatest weapon in the face of exploitation uh, and oppression. Um, and it is the class struggle that can actually bring everyone together and unify everybody. Now, intersection, intersectional theory, with its postmodern um, influence, uh, tends to reject that there is a, uni a unifying factor or theory between all of us. Uh, for example, Patricia Hill Collins, another uh, prominent um, intersectional feminist theorist, says that the overarching matrix of domination, basically the same thing as that infinite web, um, it houses multiple groups, each with varying experiences of penalty and privilege, that produce corresponding partial perspectives. No one group has a clear angle of vision. No one group possesses the theory or methodology that allows it to discover the absolute truth. Now this view is very pessimistic and quite paralyzing, because all we're left with is our subjective slip, uh, slip slithers of the world, slivers maybe. Um, um, at best, we can try to alter our own perspective um, and maybe lend passive support to other groups uh, fighting for emancipation. Um, but from this perspective, there isn't one field of vision or one field of struggle that can actually unite us all. Um, Marx would argue that there is a, a clear angle of vision and a clear field of struggle that unites all of us, and that's the class struggle. We are all united by the set of social and economic relationships that make up capitalism, which ex uh, exist objectively outside of our partial perspectives and subjective experiences. Um, that greater whole exists, and we can actually come to understand the laws and processes that shape it to intervene and change it. So class analysis and struggle is the greatest angle of vision um, and it's the most uh, uh, encompassing theory or method that does actually unite all of us. Now, if you depart from the view that we all have different antagonistic interests and different partial angles of vision with no unifying factor, socialist revolution itself ultimately becomes impossible. So despite the best intentions of many of the proponents of intersectionality, um, and you know, when I raise these critiques, it's not because I think um, proponents of these ideas are bad people, who don't mean well. In fact, many of them are very passionate about fighting depression and discrimination in all their forms and genuinely want to fight. Um, it's, but despite the, these intentions, um, these ideas do ultimately lead uh, to paralysis of the movement. Um, and I've seen this pan out in activist circles um, who basically just be, uh, collapse uh, in infighting. Now, does any of this mean that Marxists suggest putting oppression on the back burner uh, and just waiting until the socialist revolution comes to solve all these forms of oppression and we can't do anything to fight oppression today. Nothing could be further from the truth. Marxists fight all forms of, uh, and instances of oppression and discrimination in the here and now. 
You know, we fight for trans rights, we fight against police brutality, we fight for indigenous rights, and we're part of every uh, movement against oppression. Uh, we participate as the Marxists of, of these movements and seek to strengthen these movements and bring socialist politics to them because we think that's what they need to win. Um, now, fighting oppression and discrimination does include uh, education, and it does include convincing workers that it's not in their interest to discriminate against others. Um, you know, if we didn't care about education or even the importance of ideas, we wouldn't hold events like this. Obviously, Marxists also agree that you know, ideas are important, but education and convincing people to think differently on their own are not enough for reasons that I touched on earlier. What are needed are mass radical movements that can unite people to fight for better social conditions. Uh, concretely, if we're looking at fighting um, oppression or discrimination um, in our workplaces and our schools, what, uh, what should this look like? Um, you see some um, great um, movements and campaigns that spread social awareness going on today, mostly on social media, which I think are very positive, and I think it, um, it, it shows people how widespread these problems are, and it makes people who have experienced them um, have a sense of, of belonging um, when they know that so many people have experienced the same thing, such as the Me Too movement. Um, but th these movements have their limitations in terms of actually changing, changing things. What are needed um, when there are instances of, of any kind of discrimination or, or injustice in, in our workplaces and our schools are occupations, walkouts, mass demonstrations, uh, and strikes to bring the economy down until our, our demands are met. And this is um, ultimately how we can achieve justice. Uh, we also need workers and student uh, democracy. Um, again, I talked about how unaccountable employers are or the board of directors are and our campuses are. Uh, we need our schools to be democratically run by the students and the faculty. So when there is a professor spewing transphobic nonsense or hateful rhetoric, uh, we can democratically uh, remove them. Um, whereas now we don't have much, uh, much in the way um, of keeping um, these people accountable. And of course we can't stop there at just retroactively fighting for justice when some harm has been done. We have to fight to actually change the conditions that give rise to all these these forms of oppression and violence. That is um, fighting against poverty for social and economic um, uh, equality, for um, employment, access to education and healthcare uh, and childcare. Uh, and we need a, a labor movement that, that fights for these things. And ultimately, these demands must be li linked to the need for the socialist transformation of society. Uh, because none of these uh, things that could alleviate uh, the um, uh, the experience of oppression or the degree of oppression people face um, are permanent uh, or safe under capitalism. And actually, capitalism in crisis is attacking everything that we've won in the past. Um, so it has to be tied to the need for socialism uh, at every point. So ultimately, we have to fight for a society that can you know, end that rat race where we're all pit against each other in competition and provide a good standard of living for everybody so that we have not just equality on paper, but real social and economic equality. Um, and as I uh, maybe alluded to, um, it's the class struggle that not only can unite us, but it's also the class struggle and class tr struggle methods uh, that are actually the best form of education and the best way to teach people and convince them that they have no interest in discriminating and oppressing uh, other layers of the working class. You know, strikes, walkouts, and mass demonstrations teach people about their collective strength and it teaches people about their common interests. It teaches people that they have more in common than difference, and that they have more to gain in, uh, in uniting than from being divided. 
uh, we often say that a school, school that uh, life is, uh, the, no, I totally butchered that. <laughs> the best school is the school of life, that's what I wanted to say. You know, during the strike, it becomes apparent that discriminating against fellow workers undermines the whole strike, um, or that scabbing undermines the whole strike. You have to be united in the strike for it to be effective. And that understanding is reached on a mass level during uh, revolutionary movements where people uh, unite for a common goal and against a common uh, enemy. People have heard me give this uh, talk before, probably maybe sick of this example, but I'll never get sick of it. Um, uh, is in 2011, the Egyptian, the Egyptian masses united against uh, the dictator, uh, Mubarak. Um, and a year later, after taking down that dictator, they united again on the streets to take down uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, who represented the same old capitalist class and didn't solve any of their problems. Now, collective and revolutionary struggle literally transforms consciousness, and you saw this in Egypt, a country that has very, very deep um, patriarchal and misogynist um, views and, embedded in, uh, into it, uh, where 99, up to 99.9% .9 of women experience sexual violence in their lifetimes. Um, as well, uh, a society that's been deeply divided among religious lines, with Muslims and Christians embroiled in a bloodbath, literally, for, for decades. Very, you know, divided, but in, in Tahir Square, all people from all these backgrounds came together, and you actually had women and men, Muslims and Christians, literally holding hands and protecting each other. Uh, and you can look in the mainstream news, not the Marxist news, like actual just mainstream news articles that interviewed Egyptian men, and the Egyptian men said that their views of women had been transformed. They actually saw, they saw women out, um, and the women were actually the most ferocious in Tahir Square. Fighting, fighting the you know the riot police and um, just you know the most impassioned, which is often the case that the most oppressed in society, uh, because they have the most to, to win or from a successful movement or the, the most to lose from an unsuccessful one, tend to be at the forefront. And so the men saw the woman, um, you know, taking the lead um, and being ferocious and, and, and powerful, and it changed the views of them. Uh, and the woman. Uh, there's interviews with Egyptian women, and their views of themselves changed profoundly. They have been socialized their whole lives to view themselves as, as you know, uh, meek home dwellers. <laughs> um, um, and the woman actually talked about how, how uh, they um, they completely uh, their consciousness completely changed in relation to themselves. So it's actually collect these collective and revolutionary struggles. Um, that do more to eradicate discriminatory attitudes in the span of days, weeks, and months than many slower-paced educational campaign-type efforts can achieve in years and decades. Not to say that we should be against such efforts. Uh, we just have to highlight that what's really needed is, is these mass revolutionary movements. And if you compare the methods that I'm talking about, of mass strikes, demonstrations, uh, occupations, um, and, and um, uh, things like that, to the methods that are really quite prevalent among um, the student movement today, um, which where we don't really see the leadership, um, you know, mobilizing and building uh, a fight that can actually change society or win real concessions from the campus administration, the government, the ruling class. Um, we see a lot of. Um, uh, meetings that where no politics are actually discussed or debated, where a majority of the meetings are just um, just the ordering of what's going to be discussed takes up most of the whole meeting, um, or arguing over specific wording, uh, very bureaucratic, 
um, with superficial quotas that really only um, benefit a small layer of people from historically oppressed groups to become bureaucrats, um, but who ultimately um, don't uh, end up building a, a struggle that can actually um, lead to the betterment of life for the rank and file and the members that they're supposed to represent. It's a very superficial kind of politics. Uh, so we need leadership that will actually wage a united class struggle, like I've said, one that will fight for abolishing tuition fees and for living grants for students and housing for all students. Um, and the same thing in the labor movement, we'll actually fight for better conditions, not just talk about them uh, endlessly um, at meetings, that will escalate strike action against the bosses and the government, uh, the government's austerity agenda, and fight for universal programs for all. And that will link all these fights uh, to the struggle against capitalism itself. Now, a socialist revolution wouldn't eradicate oppression or discriminatory attitudes overnight. Uh, but the social and economic basis for these things, namely scarcity and competition, that keep us uh, in that constant struggle against each other, would be abolished and replaced with an abundance of opportunities and resources for all. Imagine what we could do if we freed up the trillions of dollars that are um, held in the minority's hands and use it for, you know, for benefiting all the, great, the vast majority. In such a society, people would relate to each other on a fundamentally more humane and cooperative level. Imagine how difficult it would be to blame the suffering of one group on another group if everyone was guaranteed a good and high standard of living with access to uh, all the resources and opportunities that you know, are needed for the quality of life. It would be very difficult to demonize another group and blame them for your own suffering. In such a society, those forms of ideas would have far less traction. And even if anyone uh, tried, um, I, the ideas themselves would be much less harmful when people were actually guaranteed all those resources and opportunities they're now denied on the basis of, of those ideas. Democratic control over education uh, and media and cultural institutions uh, would also guarantee that the beautiful di diversity of humanity is taught and celebrated. Um, as we know, it's, it's not uh, done so in, in mainstream media and education now. And groups that have been historically oppressed would be guaranteed the resources they need to uh, they need at the community level to address uh, their own their own unique needs um, and the impacts of hundreds if not thousands of years of, of oppression. So through the very process of revolutionary transformation, discriminatory attitudes uh, would break down, and through the establishment of a socialist society, there'd be no social basis for them uh, to to thrive any longer. So while revolution is not a quick fix, it is the path we have to follow if we want oppression and discrimination to become a thing. Um, that future generations only read about in, text, in textbooks but know nothing about in real life. Thank you for listening to Fight Back Radio. Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the international Marxist tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this on our own. So if you agree with us, get involved. We can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback Post. For international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at marxist.com. The music in this episode was General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. They can be found 
at souljazzorchestra.com.